This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report, especially for our patrons. Our lovely patrons on Patreon. It's people like you that make uh, our show great, again, because um, we've always been great. <laughs> but, uh, we appreciate your support, so we thought we would release a podcast specifically for you uh, that dovetails around the questions you wanted to ask Ernst. Yeah, we might uh, let this out uh, in, a, in a while, but you'll have uh, access to this exclusively for at least a couple of weeks. So um, we did ask, Ernst, if you don't mind, we did ask our patrons some to shoot some questions off at you. I think some of them have been answered. I'll refer to some of them just so people know we, we're not ignoring them. But um, So Ryan said... Uh, you really asked if you ever engage with the people who sort of interview you on air and, uh, you know, fight with you, etc., on television or radio, whatever it is, and then sort of go off into a green room or go off air and then have a more sort of relaxed conversation with them. And if they're more sort of open when they're not being filmed or recorded. Mm. Um, yes, usually I can tell you there was one interview I did and afterwards I, I felt that I might have, if I had to do it over, I would have, I wouldn't have changed my approach in the interview, but I would have changed what I did afterwards. So some of the viewers might have seen on, when was it? 30 October last year, the Black Monday protests. That evening I was on ENCA and I was just attacked by, um, the, the host by Vuyu Mvuku by, mm. um, some, I'm trying to remember his name, a, a commissioner from the Human Rights Commission who used to be an, an MP for uh, for the ANC and uh, the editor of The Star. And all three of them were just saying, well, this is racist and farm murders shouldn't be a priority. And and I, you could see in the interview, I was furious. And I, I wouldn't say I lost my temper, but people tend to say, well, how do you stay calm during interviews? I wasn't calm in that. <laughs> so, and then afterwards, what happened afterwards, because I was angry about the fact that just a few hours before that, one of our members was murdered. He was hacked to death, Boki Potriter. He was hacked to death with a panga. And the only thing they wanted to discuss with was a story that allegedly someone displayed the old South African flag. And the more I tried to say, do you want to discuss the fact that someone was hacked to death with a panga or do you want to discuss the old South African flag uh, based on dodgy evidence? They interrupted me when I started talking about this member of ours who was murdered. And after the interview, I literally took off my microphone and I said to them, I have to speak to – no, I said to them, I think I said I have better things to do. I took off my microphone, I put it on the table, and I walked out. I didn't say goodbye to anyone, but that's the only time I've ever done that. Usually there's not a lot of discussion with, with hosts uh, or anchors afterwards because they usually carry on with the program. So you just say hi and goodbye and and, um, and um, you walk out. I've had quite a few uh, collegial discussions with Nicholas Bauer. Um, he came to our office to do interviews and we would chat afterwards. And mm-hmm. um, But so usually it's fine. Uh, they would be – it's they, they wouldn't be as aggressive as they are in the in- interviews afterwards. Um, but what I can say um, – I think more interesting than that is the same question with regard to politicians. So I would find that that's, in my view, a major difference between the ANC and the EFF, at least in my experience. That ANC members would, they would have this debate with you and afterwards they would want to, they would make jokes. You know, you would, um, one of the jokes I, I, 
tend to, I like to tell them is I ask them what's the difference between a capitalist and a communist, and then they would have this explanation. And then I would say to them, no, the difference is a, a capitalist reads Karl Marx. Sorry, a communist reads Karl Marx, but a capitalist understands Karl Marx. Hmm. And then they would laugh, and they would. Some of them wouldn't get the joke, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> but with the EFF, it's different. So you can see, you can feel that they are racist towards you, uh, that they don't like you, they dislike you just based on the color of your skin, and of course BLF even more so. But with Julius, I've met Julius a few times, and I've spoken with him a few times. Um, it ten, it depends on his mood. Sometimes he's in a like he's in interviews, in media interviews. Sometimes he's in a in a happy mood and he makes jokes and. Um, and sometimes he's really aggressive. So in the uh, mediations we've had with him after they shoot the Boer case. So we won the case. Then they appealed to the, to the Supreme Court of Appeals. The judge said to them, well, he, he basically ordered every forum and Julius Malema and the ANC to sit around the table, Tawes A as well, the, the agricultural union, and see if we can reach some form of a mediation. And towards the end, when they agreed they're going to stop singing Shoot the Boer, uh, just as we were walking out, I went to the bathroom and Malema came in. And we were at the, the sinks, you know, yeah, what do you call basins. It, basins, washing our hands. And Malema, he was at the point of being expelled from the ANC. Um, and he said to me, he made a joke and he said, I'm going to be out of a job soon. Uh, maybe I should come and work for Afri Forum. <laughs> and I said to him, Julius, you don't realize it, but you've been working for every forum since you became president of, of the Youth League. Of course, meaning that he's been yeah, encouraging people to sign up to every forum. And he laughed and we walked out. So, But another time when I saw him, he threatened to shoot me. So um, <laughs> it depends on his mood. <laughs> Just one extra sort of add-on to that. Is there any time you've sort of sat down with someone, had a conversation with them, you felt, and I'm talking about prominent people, you felt that they were against you to start off with or you knew they were against you to start off with and at the end of the conversation, you, you felt that they were more on your side or you had convinced them? Um, yes. Um, I would say that that has happened a few times with people in the media, um, not with politicians. Uh, they walk in and they walk out with the exact same position they've had. And it's incentivized not to change your, your view. Um, so I can't remember ever having a discussion with someone from the ANC, for example. And uh, we, sometimes it would be, you know, constructive discussions and sometimes not. But I find with, and maybe it links to the stereotyping and the false accusations that what I do find regularly is speaking with people uh, who are commentators or journalists and then have, sitting down and having a cup of coffee. And then afterwards they would say, well, I'm sorry to tell you this, but the perception I had about you was wrong. Uh, you tend to be much more centrist or level-headed or nuanced than I actually thought you were. I get I get that a lot, almost on a weekly basis. People say that to me, or you know, either about me personally or about every forum. Cool, um, Ramon, you so, want to? Yes, yeah, so, so James Funden here uh, said he watched the video of you in in Parliament. He said the committee's reactions were predictable and gratuitous. Your points about the historical analysis of South Africa were good. He says, though, for himself, you are far too combative and you're not seeking any sort of reprise or compromise on your views to get to a middle ground of such. Mm. He likes, so he likes what you do in theory, but in practice, he yeah. finds you, uh, you will not win the argument. Mm. Um, we have spoken about this in the previous mm. podcast, but I mean, what do you say? Yeah, to that? I think that is a valid criticism. Um, so we, uh, I, 
I hate it when people describe themselves as strategists because I tend I tend to find that people who talk who refer to themselves as strategists tend to not understand how strategy works. So I don't want to say that I'm a strategist, but I do like reading about strategy. And um, Michael Porter, who's a very well-known business strategist who writes for the Harvard Business Review regularly, um, he he's made a point about strategy, and he says that the Firstly, how you know someone is not really a strategist is if they, if they tell you about all the stuff that you should be doing. Um, the most important and most difficult thing about strategy is determining what you should not be doing, what the trade-offs would be, because sometimes there would be low-hanging fruit in your way. And if you change your focus, you can go for this low-hanging fruit, and it, it would be beneficial in the short run, but in the long run, it would be detrimental because you wouldn't have a focus. And I think that's what the DA is suffering from at the moment. But um, so – there was a particular strategy with which we went in. And the problem with strategy or the difficult thing about strategy is trade-offs. There are certain things that you want to achieve and following a particular strategy, you have to acknowledge that you are not going to achieve this because your strategy is different. So yes, you could, we could comment on that and we can discuss that about the fact that I might have, because actually everything I said in my presentation was very fact-based. The only part that could be interpreted as emotional or as an insult, as it was described, is the very end, the last paragraph, where I said to them that they are drunk on ideology um, and they are drunk on hatred and contempt and that what they are doing is more detrimental to the poor even and to their own constituency uh, than anyone else. So, yeah, I think the, the approach was to go in hard, to make it clear that we are not intimidated by them, to sort of draw a line in the sand. Yeah. And that's unfortunately the negative consequence of that. I think as Ramon has pointed out, the people who didn't go in hard and who were very polite and were very, well, uh, you know, they, they gave a presentation you'd kind of, the, the, the tone of which is what you would expect from non-parliamentarians coming to parliament. Yeah, well, it was on the term set by the parliamentary committee. And those people yeah. received a very similar kickback to what you had so i uh, you know i think i i take the the point that james is making but i i think difficult difficult call so ken wants to know um you know given how effective something like the eff has been uh you know they've got a very small voter base uh they only really can get about six to eight percent in any election i, I have no real doubt mm. that next year will be not much different to that um they wanted to basically say, you know, why isn't Afri Forum a, just a political party? Mm. Because look at what the EFF has managed to accomplish. Um, 200,000 members and growing, but mm. 200,000 members would give you, I think, about four seats in parliament. Mm. Uh, why not? Why not go that way? Yeah, we, we wouldn't do that. Um, we always say to people who want us to become a political party that, or ask if we plan to become a political party that they, they underestimate our aspirations. Um, meaning that we believe we can achieve a lot more being outside parliament. So let's say we enter politics, we become a political party and we, we get 10 times as many votes as we have members. Uh, we would still be an opposition party. Uh, we would still, we would, be limited to a very large extent. We we always have a saying that the best way to neutralize an activist is to put him in a committee. Um, and, and that's what's happening in parliament. So you spend most of your time reading reports that are oftentimes a bunch of hogwash, um, 
bunch of rubbish. You have to read it, big report, hundreds you've got to of follow pages. Follow processes. Yeah, you've I got mean, to that's f- actually sorry to interrupt, but that's why the National Democratic Revolution has taken this long. Is what you took is you took a whole bunch of freedom fighters, which are basically activists with guns, yeah. um, and you put them into a government, a bureaucracy, and you said to them. Look, you can do whatever you want, guys, but there's like steps. You know, you've got to go through seven committees before you can do mm. anything you want to do. Mm. And so it's taken them this long to get there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we would be constrained by parliamentary processes. Uh, we would have to sit in parliament like this last week. We would have to sit there for a whole week and listen to submissions by other movements. I think we achieve a lot more. Not only from the fact that we are not constrained, but also I think people trust us more, the fact that we're not a political party. So I think I think we achieve more. Um, if we went, let's say, to the U.S., as we did earlier this year, as a political party, uh, it would have been more difficult to achieve what we want to do. I think there's a lot of place for political parties, and I think I think we need proper political parties in South Africa. But us as an organization, we believe our role is outside of party politics. So, Ronaldo Host, who is a patron of our, send me a, a WhatsApp um, mm. rather than on Patreon. He That's says, the guy who has four degrees. I think so. Yeah. Something like that. He lives in some shithole called PE or something. Mm. <laughs> so, he's, sorry, Ronaldo, you know I love you. Um, so his question is, did you really expect to change the mind of the people on the panel? Mm. Or did you know going in that it was futile mm. and that the aggressive approach would be more reportable? By the media. Yes, I didn't expect them. I didn't expect to change any views. I think if my approach was different, I still wouldn't have con- uh, convinced them otherwise. I also think that judging from what they've said before Afri Forum's presentation, they were clearly waiting for us. So frequently, almost every day, they made some reference to Afri Forum who's still coming to this, you know, not in a way in which they are looking forward to give us hugs and kisses. So they were clearly expecting a fight. And even if we were very, very mild, they would still have done that. I, I think so. I don't think for, for us, it was not so much about being reportable. In other words, it wasn't for the the presentation to be newsworthy. I think that's a spin-off of, of the strategy. It was more to to point out to them that we know what they are doing and to point out to them that we are not intimidated by them um and we're not we're not the let's not compare to other organizations in South Africa again I'm not saying the Nazis but let's use the the Nazi example we're not like Neville Chamberlain we would rather take the Winston Churchill approach um and I think it was important to point that out that was the most important reason or motive for the approach cool uh, then from Bradley, some, uh, Ramon's giving everyone surnames. I'm, I'm keeping the surnames off. Um, I'm not sure if, if people, <laughs> I'm not sure where, where people fall, but, um, Bradley's asked, uh, well, he's, he's given some suggestions, but I think they, they might be some good things for, for discussion. Um, the one is that he feels that you should be denouncing the old SA flag because it was mentioned recently that Afri Forum always present the old flag during protests. He says, hopefully not true, but denouncing it will show goodwill and prove that you're not racist. Mm. Okay, I have some thoughts on that as well. Um, and <laughs> yeah. then um, let's I'll just go through all of them and then you mm. can we go through them one by one. He says um, we should be using Afri Forum's deep pockets to help a pro- cross-section of the population. So he says that, you know, the Dr. Matori story, for example – Mm. Um, convince him to actually donate to Afri mm. Forum. Um, mm. and then, 
uh, he just suggested that you keep up the international pressure because it mm. seems to be the only stick that works. And I think you've, you've discussed that. So let's yeah. leave that aside. Let's talk about the two things, the old flag, mm. um, the old South African flag, and then uh, the, you know, how you decide who you help and, and whether that can be a more diverse grouping, so yeah. to speak. Well, my, my favorite quote on freedom of speech is a quote by Douglas Murray who said that, the problem with defending freedom of speech is that you never get to do it on the terms that you would have hoped for. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't have had to defend anything. So our view on the old South African flag has always been that we respect the right of people to display the flag, although we encourage people not to do so. So at our events, we do not display the old South African flag, and there are some angry people who could testify that they tried to show up with the old South African flag at an Afriforum event, and we asked them to put it away. Uh, we've done so quite a few times. Um, what I have said uh, in our court documents is, I think the words were, we have no particular love for the flag. I think the flag, and that, this is my personal view, I think the flag, um, it's a political flag. Uh, it's not a flag that represents Afrikaners as a community. Um, and I think I, for example, distinguish between the fear clear and the old South African flag, which many people think it's the same thing. I have I attach some value to the, the, the fear clear, which is the flag under which the Boers fought the Boer War. I regard that as a cultural flag and the old South African flag, the Waranya Blanya Blow, as it is known, I regard as a political flag. Just, but, just visually, what's the difference? So the fear clear is the one that has a. It has a, an, a blue uh, bar to the right, and then it's orange, white, and – no, 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 sorry, green uh, to the side of the flag, and then the, it's orange, white, and blue. Um, the, the old South African flag is – Yes. Sorry, let me create that. It, it's green to the side, and then it's red, white, and blue. That's the fear clear. The old South African flag is orange, white, and blue, and then it has the three little flags in the middle. So I, I regard the fear clear as a, a cultural flag uh, to which I personally attach value um, as someone who's – great-grandfather was in that war. But we discourage our members to display either of those flags. Um, and the reason why is we believe that it's not constructive. Unfortunately, the AWB has has put a big, uh, as we say in Afrikaans, a Branavain flag or a brandy stain on the fear clear as well. So the flag is now being is now associated with being right-wing or AWB. And that is, it's unfortunately a a stereotype or a battle of ideas that we have to engage with. And we don't want to give unnecessary ammunition to our opponents to try to discredit us. So then the issue with the old South African flag is the Nelson Mandela Foundation went to court and they applied, and it's a court case that's coming up, they basically approached court for a declarative order that the old South African flag is hate speech, only to display it, only to show the flag to someone is hate speech, and therefore the flag has to be banned. And despite the fact that we have always said to people we do not think it's a good idea to display the flag, they then added AfriForum as a respondent. So they want AfriForum to oppose them. And it was a difficult decision for us because, firstly, we don't display the flag. But secondly, we believe that this is an issue, is an issue of freedom of speech. And displaying a flag doesn't couldn't be hate speech. So we decided that we are going to oppose it. And we describe ourselves in, in the legal documents as a reluctant opponent. Um, we are in this fight in the interest of freedom of speech, but not because we display the flag in, uh, at all. Mm, with any passion. Yeah. I think, I think what's important here is um, it's not about that flag. It's about freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Today, it's banning that flag because a certain grouping of people, or maybe even a large grouping of people, find that flag to be hurtful, distasteful, whatever it happens to be. 
in 10, 20, 30 years' time, 50 years' time, maybe it's a different flag. Mm. Maybe it's not a flag. It's your T-shirt. Maybe it's not your T-shirt. It's the way you look. Mm. Um, it's th- the book you read. Yep. It's mm. the YouTube video you're watching. It's mm. the podcast you listen to. Mm. Um, and I think that, slippery that, that that's really the point. The point is once you start banning one form of expression, yeah. um, you have to kind of consider that all of them might get banned. Right. And, and this is not a question, but it's exactly the EWC principle. We'll only take – use land for hmm. now yeah. okay and yeah and th- that's why i mentioned um the nazi example is because so what hitler did is he invaded the rhineland which he according to the the treaty of versailles he wasn't allowed to do and then he started occupying some parts of czechoslovakia if i recall and then the international community became concerned they thought well this guy's going to start a civil war Oh, not a civil war, a, a world war. Yeah. And they went and they, they had discussions with him and it was Chamberlain and who was it from, from France? It wasn't de Gaulle who, uh, it was the guy who was before de Gaulle. Before, and, and name. then it was Mussolini and Hitler and they had these discussions and they basically said to him, listen, we don't like what you did, but it's fine. You, you can take the Rhineland. You can take those parts of Czechoslovakia. Like just stop now. Now you must stop. Yeah. And then, okay, are we fine? And then Hitler said, okay, fine. And after the, so Neville Chamberlain went back to England with a signed agreement and there's a video of YouTube with him waving it and people cheering. Yeah. And, and a uh, famous photograph as well. Yes. And basically he said to them that I think he used the term peace in our lifetime. And, and Adolf Hitler went back and he said, well, I've met these people and, uh, they are weak. So we can continue. So I, and that's, that's the major difference, I think, in approach. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, sorry? Oh, no, that's my turn. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, that second point about AfriForum using their deep pockets in inverted <laughs> commas. Um, I think if you, if, if, uh, you've ever been to AfriForum, you will realize that they actually spend their money, mm. I would say wisely, but they do spend it. Yeah. Um, on serving their community. So mm. there's a, for example, I've seen some of the projects you, you do around f- farms and trying to keep farms safe. Mm. Um, so I don't know how deep your product, I don't think you've got yeah. tons of money sitting around doing nothing. Mm. Um, but in terms of, you know, he's saying, look, when he saw you helping this, uh, this guy in Pretoria, uh, it made him want to, to give you yeah. some cash. And it also sort of doused the flames of, oh, no, these are just sort of an Afrikaans whites-only organization. Mm. Yeah. So firstly, well, I, I know people like to make the calculations to try to work out, well, if you have so many members and they each <laughs> contribute monthly, how much money do you have? Um, it costs a lot of money to run an organization. So I'm not the financial um, manager or this the CFO. But it's about 40 to 50% of our money we spend on just keeping the administration systems running and the overheads and so forth. And then we are involved with a lot of other stuff or a lot of stuff as an organization. So we, we're not a, we're a nonprofit. We don't have shareholders. So any, uh, we don't use the term profit at all because we don't make profit. Any surplus, uh, we try to invest as a, a, um, a backup plan. So if all, if everything crashes and burns, if we have the worst case scenario in South Africa, so that AfriForum would still be able to continue. Um, but so we, we are involved with a lot of things and our main priority, our number one focus is safety. So we have about roughly 120 branches across South Africa, AfriForum branches in local communities. We have more or less the same amount of community safety networks, which is a voluntary thing that we people uh, we provide them with equipment, uh, radios, and so forth. And um, so there's a lot that we do there. And we have about 7,000 volunteers who are involved with 
driving patrols and in the whole safety project. Um, so we, that's where most of our, our resources is spent. But to get to the question um, about, uh, I had an interview, uh, in, interesting interview just a few days ago, exactly about that on 702 with uh, Joanne. And she said to me, I'll, I think she said something along the lines of, yes, but why don't you help black people? And I started listing um, black people who we've gone to court for on behalf. And there's a long list. The most recent case is this uh, Dr. Motori Maserumule. Uh, we assisted Gabriela Engels. We are in the process of assisting the black community of Nkandla, who government promised them a school 20 years ago. It's little primary school children. They have to walk through a river every day. Um, to get to school It's just down the road from Nkandla So we we are going to court on their behalf uh, We've gone to court on behalf of the Community of Valmanstal North of Pretoria Whose property was invaded uh, There's a long list uh, The um, the Dube family Who uh, who were um, The lady who was killed by Dudezane Duma, uh, Zuma So there's a whole long list um, And then, then the question would be Oh but you're just doing this for PR So the, the the response is how many such cases do we need to take on for us to disprove that it's just for positioning? That's the I'm not racist because I've got a black friend yeah, argument. Yeah. They put, so, it, yeah, but we help black people. Oh yes, but that's yeah. just you know not real help. Not enough. Yeah, yeah. So the accusation is you never help black people. Then we list them and then they say, well no, that's just PR. So um, the point is that it's a principled based organisation, um, and we do have a focus on minority rights. But one of the core things that we stand for is the protection of property rights. So. If if the if the land of a black community is being invaded, and especially when government refuses to help them, then we would intervene. Cool, Roman. Right. Now it's your turn. So Neil, no surname, uh, says he says hypothetically the, the you know land starts being seized, farms mm. start being seized by the government without compensation, province by province. Mm. What is what your what, what's your what's your plan then? Mm. I mean, assuming do you go to courts um, or is there another plan? Yeah. That's a difficult question to answer because it would depend on on the details. It would depend on how this is happening and what is happening. So regardless of AfriForum's involvement, people would people would protect themselves. I know enough farmers protect themselves and their property. I know enough farmers who have said to me that if they try to take his land, he would rather die on his farm than to than to concede and pack up his stuff and leave. And that's why it doesn't make sense for the ANC or the EFF to say we're going to do the same thing as what happened in Zimbabwe, but this time there's not going to be violence because the question of whether there would be violence depends on the person whose property is being taken. So that's, I think, a major risk. Um, And if that were to happen, then we would want to be prepared to assist people in a responsible manner. Uh, but the most appropriate thing to do in that situation would be to use the courts um, to to try to get an urgent interdict, mm. to try to get some police involvement. And if that fails, I think a, a another appropriate step to take would be to get United Nations involvement. But I know we know you know the UN doesn't have a very good track record of preventing. I just I just want to um, clarify a point there because when this does get released to public and not just to mm. uh, patrons, um, you are not advocating for violence. No, 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 no. We, we're doing the opposite. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. you want to try legal legal yes. methods and yes. legal means. Yes. Yeah, I just hear appeasement. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Gareth, I'm not going to re-ask your question, but Gareth's question was essentially if you can give feedback about your comments and questions during Parliament, and I mm. think we've covered that extensively in the main mm. podcast. Mm. Um, yes. And then finally, uh, George 
sort of George says um, that government sort of loves to say that we have free and fair judiciary. Um, and he basically wants to know if you can't challenge the core argument for expropriation with, without compensation, you know, the whole idea that whites, just white people stole the land basically. Mm. And there's, it's not more complex than that. If that, um, couldn't be taken to court and in court, you can't get emotional. You have to present, mm. uh, you know, patent fact. Uh, and then it goes up for that to be argued. And if it needs be all the way to the constitutional court. Yeah. Which I just want to say does not in recent times have the best track record in terms of property rights. Yeah. Uh, ruled against farmers having mineral rights on their own property. Or well, everyone having mineral yeah. rights, yeah. Yeah, so uh, we discussed a bit of this also during the previous podcast. Um, my concerns or our concerns about what's happening in the constitutional court. And I think to summarize that is the constitutional court, the courts in general, but particularly the constitution, constitutional court is not as Nonpartisan, as people tend to think, um, they they still the majority of people on the judicial service commission are politicians, um, and there, there's a big difference between court judgments that are based on administrative or procedural issues, where they quite easily rule against the ANC or the ruling party, such as the Sasa judgment, uh, the Nkandla judgment, and so forth, um, or when it has to do with faction fighting in, within the ruling party or the ruling elite, they would sometimes choose a side. Um, but when it has to do with ideological issues, almost every time they've interpreted the constitution in a way that supports the narrative of the ANC. So in the Renata Barnard case, they said that, yes, affirmative action is not discrimination. It's, it's an execution of the constitutional mandate in the re- recent judgment about the, you know, the language policy at the University of the Free State. They said, yes, despite the fact that the constitution says that there are 11 official languages and it must be uh, protected where pra- reasonably practicable, the the court said it's reasonably it's not reasonably practicable because some of the people in the Afrikaans classes are racist, therefore they shouldn't be able to study in Afrikaans. Of course, not even considering that other people might also be racist. So they were, and then you mentioned the Agrius A case with mineral rights. So there's a list. There was the Fedsas case where the court found that the government government has a bigger right to intervene in terms of school policies than the governing body of the school, which is uh, voted in by uh, parents. So our concern is we, we use the courts. It's a very big part of our strategy, but we try to go to court on procedural issues where we believe we can win, can win as opposed to asking the court to make a judgment on an ideological issue. Yeah, because there you're more likely to lose because the mm. judges themselves are somewhat ideological. Mm. And at the constitutional court level, let's not rem- forget that we have a constitution that is ideological. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a, we have a constitution that promises a whole bunch of free things. It's Bernie Sanders's wet yeah. dream. And so, so even if they are completely non-ideological in interpreting that, they're immediately interpreting in some respect a partly socialist document. Yeah, but it can be, it can be a, a, a libertarian document too. You have the right to education. Okay, school vouchers, you know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is a viable possibility, but the, the uh, program of the state that's being uh, reviewed by court is always a very statist one. Yeah. There's so, never been an alternative other than the status one being yeah. reviewed in court. So, so, for example, the mineral rights case. The, it's one thing to rule about the procedural aspects, but what Chief Justice Mukwing said in that judgment was that the state should own the minerals, 
because it would be good for the economy if the state intervenes. So he's, he's pretending to be an economist and he makes claims about what would be in the interest of the country's econom- economy, despite the fact that that wasn't even the question that was asked. And the most important part of the ADRSA case. <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan keeps deplatforming de- 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 me in my own podcast. Um, the state does not expropriate because they have to pay compensation, so they become custodians. Yes. And that is not ownership because fuck knows why. Mm. That's the same principle uh, mm. that applies. But because they become custodians, they don't have to, well, give compensation. Yeah. At the, the ruling is, is a devastating ruling for property rights in this country. And, uh, yeah, vastly underappreciated. As, as an attack mm. on, on property rights. And if this is, if the ANC just comes out and says, well, expropriate becomes custodians of the land, the president said by the mineral rights case is not good. Yes. No, exactly. And, and the president said they could also be used, uh, in many ways on, on other aspects as well. Exactly. Exactly. And besides, I mean, the fact that this gentleman asked this question about the battle ideas being fought in court, I think that's the completely wrong platform mm. to fight the battle of ideas. Yeah. Uh, his, historical accuracy is not meant to be a legal mm. proposition. So uh, maybe the best example is the one I didn't mention, and that was the street names case, which was also a, a judgment by the Constitutional Court by the Chief Justice, where every forum was the it was every forum versus the Chuani Metro, and our entire case was built around the fact that the legal procedures weren't followed, that the process was illegal, therefore the outcome should be regarded as illegal. And basically what Mukhweng said, he, he spoke about uh, substance over form. And what he meant by that is, yes, he, he, he conceded that the process was illegal, but the outcome was, was noble. Yeah, fruit of the poison tree. Yeah, the outcome was noble, therefore therefore it was legal. He declared it to be illegal while acknowledging that they didn't follow the, the correct procedures. Yeah, and, and, yeah, and this is a man that's praised. You know, the Chief Justice is praised for slapping Zuma on the wrist when he does something Objectionably bad, yeah. which any other judge would slap on the wrist yeah. too. They're fiercely independent in the same echo chamber. Yeah. It's yes. ridiculous. <laughs> right. So, Ramon, is there anything further from you? Uh, no. Um, Ernst, um, I don't, I won't tell you this in person and not in public, but I think I'm not a patriot, but I think you are to some degree. And I think you are a great South African. And I think every forum is doing if he does exist, God's work. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Thank you very much. No, really, you got you got hundreds of thousands of people donating money to you, skin in the game. You get attacked mercilessly for things you don't do and don't say, and you and you you keep doing it. You write books, you write articles, you go to court, you get insulted every day. So, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass, but mm. um, I just want to say, well done, and you have the support of myself, maybe not of Jonathan at this moment. I don't speak on his behalf. <laughs> But uh, you keep going, and uh, thank you for what you do. I think it's most South Africans should appreciate that. Thank you very much. Well, I echo those sentiments, and you do have my support, um, as do all organizations who are fighting against EWC specifically. Um, you know, uh, we've had uh, yourself on. We've had France on. We should have someone from the um, uh, Free Market Free Market Foundation. Foundation. <laughs> Um, sorry, I remembered F and F and F and then couldn't remember what it stood for. But, um, <laughs> mm. yeah, I, I, I think, uh, these are incredibly important discussions and I have said it before on the podcast, but I really do believe that the future of this country hinges on this particular matter. Mm. Um, NHI is a similar area of, of, of concern I have. I'm from that, that arena. 
and uh, we have to fight it and you're doing a sterling job. So mm. thank you. Thank you very much and thank you for your support as well. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Renegade Report. Most importantly, you guys donate to the show. We truly, truly appreciate it. You enable us to keep going, to come here on a Friday and make it happen on and, and every other day and uh, to hopefully grow from strength to strength. So keep listening, keep supporting us, and we'll catch you next time. Cheers. This is cliffcentral.com.